Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. Uh, I'm Keith Rathbone. Normally, I say coming to you live from Macquarie University, but we're actually coming to you live from my house today. And so I do apologize to listeners if they hear any noise in the background. That's my uh, delightful uh, two-year-old who's uh, just getting into the terrible twos, in fact. (laughs) I'm here today uh, with Alan Downey. He is the author of The Creator's Game, Lacrosse, Identity, and Indigenous Nationhood, which is out from uh, University of British Columbia Press in 2018. And I note here on the copy of my book, it says the winner, uh, a a laureate of Prix du Canada Prize. Um, Thank you very much, uh, Alan, for joining us. Well, thank you very much. I'm sorry, I also should mention Alan is an associate professor (laughs) at McMaster University. Um, yes, sorry. thank you very much for joining us, Alan. Well, thanks for having me, Keith. I, uh, I'm really happy to be here. I loved this book, Alan. Um, it's been one of my favorites uh, so far in 2020. Uh, I wonder if we could just start by having you tell us how this project developed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as mentioned, my name is Alan Downey. I'm Deketh uh, Nakazli-Wetton and an associate professor in the Department of History and Indigenous Studies program at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Um, and the idea for, for examining lacrosse came out of my own experience as an athlete. Um, I actually was, had played lacrosse since I was about 10 years old. I'm in my mid-30s now. Um, it, it's really been a big part of my life. I ended up going on a lacrosse scholarship to the United States to a small university called Mercyhurst University in Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, I ended up getting drafted professionally and then ended up playing semi-professionally and rather than going pro decided to go to grad school and study the game of lacrosse um as an indigenous person when i was growing up you know in lacrosse circles it was generally in north america it's known to be an indigenous game um so within lacrosse circles that's well known um and for me as an indigenous youth growing up in an urban setting um that's something that I connected to. Here I was as an uh, Indigenous youth, an Indigenous kid, um, playing an Indigenous game. And I took a great amount of pride in that. It meant a lot to me um, to hear stories of Indigenous players, to hear stories of Indigenous communities and where this game came from and its connection to Indigenous peoples. Um, And later what I would find out, its connection to Indigenous sovereignty, self-determination and identity, which I talk about in the book. Um, But that connection to this Indigenous game as an Indigenous youth was really important um, for me. It was an empowering thing to hear, to be able to play this Indigenous game. Um, And so after I kind of had my lacrosse career, uh, I would say in my early 20s, I decided to go to grad school. And what better game or what better topic to start studying in grad school than than the game I was still playing? 
kind of playing semi-professionally and um you know i knew that there was this indigenous connection to it but i wanted to kind of look at that more in depth um and so that was my proposal for my master's project at wilfrid laurier university in my hometown of waterloo ontario and it kind of grew from there um i started this project off as a short 50 page major research paper for my master's project. My supervisor, Susan Nalen, who is an incredible scholar at Laurier, um, asked if I would be interested in kind of continuing this project into a PhD. And and it kind of rolled from there, um, where it ended up being about a 350 page dissertation, now turned book. Um, but it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to read. Um, I, 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 there's a lot of content that I'm hoping we could chat about, but I think there's, um, some, some kind of methodological or theoretical issues that, um, for me, I found fascinating, but one of the things that you, you do throughout is use, um, what, what you term, um, or what I feel like is being termed in the book, uh, indigenous epistemologies. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you weren't just, um, studying sports history, maybe in a in a in the usual way, but you actually were were doing some pretty innovative methodological work as well. Yeah, one of the things that I say um, and argue in the introduction is that lacrosse's theory that um, the stories, the oral histories, the epistemologies of indigenous peoples, particularly of the Haudenosaunee, the Squamish, uh, the Daketh, my nation all play a really significant role in this storytelling of the history of the game that you can't compartmentalize lacrosse or other aspects of indigenous lives because they're interconnected. So what I mean by that is there's no such thing as in kind of a Western framework of compartmentalizing sport different, um, differentiated from politics or separated from politics or separated from uh, your epistemologies or separated from uh, your governance system. See, these things within Indigenous communities are all intertwined. And so that's what I mean by lacrosse is theory. In order to know the intricacies of lacrosse from a Haudenosaunee perspective, from a Squamish perspective, from a Mi'kmaq perspective, all these different Indigenous nations across North America that had the game of lacrosse, you need to know um, not only the intricacies of their knowledge uh, that they were sharing um, and shared with me, you don't need to know just the intricacies of things relate directly related to the sport of lacrosse. You need to um, be exposed to and understand, or at least um, come to work and grapple with indigenous forms of governance, indigenous forms of gender relations and gendered identities um, and queerness. Um, you need to come to understand or kind of interact with indigenous storytelling and indigenous storytelling methodologies. Uh, that's such an important thing to, to be able to kind of uh, really provide a more accurate or um, a better picture of what the game of lacrosse means in indigenous communities. So really had to kind of uh, wrestle with that. And and there's a few other kind of issues going on. Um, and that is that within kind of Canadian historiography, I never saw myself reflected as an Indigenous person. 
within Canada, generally the vast majority of historical works are not written by Indigenous people, even when it comes to Indigenous topics. And so the methodologies, the way in which uh, Indigenous communities share their history, share their stories, share their knowledge, share their expertise, uh, is not really reflected in the historiography. And so I had to turn elsewhere. So I turned to my own storytelling um, methodologies. And that is within my community, a Deketh community, we have tricksters. We call them tricksters. And uh, one in particular named Uzdaz uh, plays a big part in helping me kind of share uh this history of lacrosse, share my own kind of connections to the game of lacrosse, um, what I learned from the game from various Indigenous nations and communities. And so I actually use that. I actually talk to Uzdaz in the book, in the introduction of each chapter, to be able to kind of get across, um, I guess, to address the various anomalies, the the various challenges of creating a history like this um, from an indigenous perspective, to to really challenge timeframes, to challenge settler colonialism, um, and even to challenge the field of of Canadian historiography uh, in the way in which they kind of um, approach. Indigenous history and an Indigenous topics. Um, and so I turned to people like Leanne Simpson, uh, turned to other Indigenous theorists like Thomas King, uh, novelists, um, many, many Indigenous theorists and scholars, um, and incredible people that have been doing this in academic literature for, for decades now. Um, some incredible works like Philip Deloria's Playing Indians uh, plays a significant role in this book as well. And it's just a different way of approaching uh, these stories. Yeah, I, I, uh, I can't, I'm, I can't agree more. I love the, I'm, I'm will apologize to you, Alan, and to all the listeners if I mispronounce uh, things, especially as I was reading them in my head, like I, in my head, it was Uzdas, but it's Uzdas. It's close. Yeah, no, it's good. It's like, close. <laughs> yeah. So um, I will apologize if I mispronounce things, but I loved this kind of framing that you used that was almost um, kind of an autoethnography that allowed you as the author to, to, emerge in your work in a way that you were kind of making clear um, what is often unclear, which is the, the, the point of view of the author uh, in, in the subject itself. Um, and then I loved, you know, your, your, your resistance to uh, talking about the origins of the game. You, you call it the creator's game and you talk about its, its origins in a, in a way that I think many sports historians wouldn't. We're, we're more like, you know, challenging or troubling the double day myths of, of baseball <laughs> but we're maybe more uncomfortable with the way you do it so why do you call it the uh, creator's game and maybe uh, tell us a little bit about um about in a in an indigenous epistemology where lacrosse comes from and how it how it would have worked um in a maybe pre-colonial uh indigenous space yeah so the game of lacrosse um ex- at the time of contact and before contact with non-Indigenous peoples existed all across North America. So the Mi'kmaq in present-day Nova Scotia, down to the Seminole Nation in 
what is now present day Florida, west to the Pomo Nation in California, north to um, Coast Salish Territory, which is Vancouver, North Vancouver, and all in between indigenous nations had the game of lacrosse. Now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean every indigenous nation had it, but we do know it was widespread across the continent. And the, the reference to the creator's game is actually a very specific reference to the Haudenosaunee Nation, formerly known as the Iroquois, because they reference the game as being a gift from the creator. And that actually plays a big part in the prologue. Um, I worked with so many incredible Indigenous knowledge holders and elders, uh, particularly from Haudenosaunee communities and other communities uh, that were willing to share their knowledge, their expertise. I was just so fortunate. Um, to have that opportunity. I just had the time and space to be able to write down kind of their expertise, their brilliance, um, and share that with people. And so they they really um, devoted a lot of time to me um, to teach me about these things. And the Creator's Game is actually a reference, again, um, specific to the Haudenosaunee. So they they understand that this game of lacrosse uh, has been here since time immemorial, since the very beginning of time. Um, and they have a creation story about it and about actually North America. Um, a woman falls from the sky and it's in the prologue of the book where the amazing Delmore Jacobs, um, who's a Cayuga faith keeper, um, that is, he's basically in charge of, or not so much in charge, but um, has the role, the position of sharing and keeping the traditions and the culture alive and going for future generations. And he shared these uh, stories with me. And so we know that the game of lacrosse was widespread across North America at the time of contact and afterwards. Um, and I'm really looking at a period from 1860 to kind of the present day. And the reason why I selected that timeline was because I was more interested. I, I love kind of um, early Canadian North American history. It's fine. Um, but I, I'm a, more of a modernist. Um, so I do modern modern Indigenous history and sovereignty movements. Uh, I'm a historian of, of sovereignty, nationhood, and self-determination. Um, and so that's what I kind of examined, and that's what I wanted to look at. But what ends up happening is actually Canada takes over the administration of Indigenous Affairs or Indian Affairs uh, from the Colonial Office in England in and around 1860. Now, there's kind of a period in which that happens, but that's really the kind of official date that it, it, that it happens, or at least the year. And so what I'm looking at is actually how this game of lacrosse is, serves as an interaction or serves as a space of interaction between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. Uh, the game of lacrosse we know from, again, time immemorial and throughout the oral histories of Indigenous nations. Historically, it's been this critical piece of Indigenous nationhood and the articulation of their self-determination prior to contact, after contact, right up until the modern day. Um, there's many, many stories of this. So one of the really interesting things that I was able to do as I traveled the country um, and across North America generally is to talk to Indigenous communities um, and get their different perspectives on the game of lacrosse. Now, just because there was games all across or forms of lacrosse all across North America doesn't mean they all look the same. So in certain areas like the southeast of the United States, they would use a smaller stick. Um, generally, sometimes they would use two sticks. Um, that's particularly among the Choctaw and the Seminole nations. Um, 
you go into the Great Lakes region, they could often have one larger stick uh, that they played with. Or out west, there again, they would have a smaller stick. Um, and so it varied. It varied based on the nation, uh, based on their culture, based on their language, based on their governance systems. Uh, the rules were all different among Indigenous nations. And they all have their own creation stories and names for the game. Um, And so I had the opportunity to kind of look at that um, and really engage with that. But then the question becomes, okay, uh, within, it's well known, actually, I'm not sure if um, international audiences know this, but it's well known within kind of uh, Canadian history that the game of lacrosse is actually Canada's national sport. Now, it's Canada's national summertime sport, and then hockey is the wintertime sport. And the question became for me, how did that happen? How did this critical piece of Indigenous nationhood and self-determination become kind of part of Canadian folklore and Canadian identity building, Um, particularly with the kind of uh, the history of settler colonialism within Canada, um, whether it be the dispossession of Indigenous lands, um, the criminalization of Indigenous peoples, uh, sending Indigenous peoples, including my family, to residential schools to assimilate them, um, which is now has been kind of, uh, it's been determined by a Truth and Reconciliation Commission here that re- happened within the last few years, that that was a form and an act of cultural genocide. And so with this kind of colonial history, why would Canadians attempt to appropriate this Indigenous element, this indig- something so critical to Indigenous epistemologies? Well, the thing that occurs is that in the 1850s, a person by w, the name of W.G. Beers uh, is in Montreal, non-Indigenous person, middle-class, Anglophone, English-speaking, that is, um, Protestant. He's in the Montreal area at this time. Um, and Canadians in the 1850s and 1860s really don't know what it means to be Canadian at this point. They're still formu- formulating that. They're still trying to figure it out. What differentiates Canadians from Americans or from the Irish or from the English or Scottish or the French? Um, and they're still working that out. Well, Enter kind of W.G. Beers, who is introduced to this game of lacrosse in about approximately the 1840s and 1850s. And they're introduced to the game of lacrosse from indigenous communities that live by in Ganawage and Ganasatage and Akwesasne. These are actually all Mohawk or Ganyagahaga communities. And after seeing this game, and starting to play it themselves, these non-Indigenous Montrealers actually come up with this idea of forming their own lacrosse organization. And so in 1856, they start the Montreal Lacrosse Club, and they start to use it as a way to actually formulate and form a Canadian national identity. They do this through visual images, written histories and media reports. So W.G. Beers is writing to the Montreal press saying, you have to see this great quote unquote Canadian game. Um, And they're attempting to instill what they consider middle-class British Anglophone Protestant values within a Canadian system through sport. And so as they do this, they use indigenous uh, performers to play the game of lacrosse and to, to gather audiences and to write kind of media reports and, and produce visual images of these games. 
And one of the big things that is occurring just during this time, of course, is not only is this kind of um, this formulation of a Canadian identity happening, this in, and also this kind of insecurity of what it means to be Canadian, but WG Beers and others at the Montreal Lacrosse Club decide, you know what, if we take this game, this indigenous game and appropriate it as their own, it can be a way in which we can articulate our unique identity as Canadians. See, the way that works is within and under settler colonialism is that these people, these non-indigenous kind of, let's say, lacrosse enthusiasts, they're foreign to the territories that they are now claiming as their own. So no matter how many generations they had been here, um, the territories in which they were entering and lived in were not their own, right? They're, 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 they are indigenous territories. So in the Montreal region, that's Ganyagahaga territory and Anishinaabe territory, uh, it's overlapping, but two different nations. And so they're now trying, these non-indigenous Canadians attempt to claim these lands as their own. And they're uh, taking those, dispossessing indigenous peoples of those lands, but they still don't have anything really tying them to place, at least their identity. So what they kind of conclude or what they start doing is claiming this game of lacrosse because indigenous peoples are of the territory. They are from these places. Well, this game of lacrosse also, of course, being indigenous or native to indigenous peoples, uh, kind of pun intended there. uh, If you start appropriating that, you then can have a source of... um, you have a source of identity rooted in place. It's actually rooted in land because it is from here. It is of the place. So what we start seeing is that WG Beers and non-Indigenous lacrosse uh, enthusiasts start claiming this game as their own, appropriating it, changing the rules of it, uh, making it kind of appealing to non-Indigenous Canadians, particularly Protestant middle-class Canadians, um, and the values that they are attempting to uphold uh, and to reproduce within this country. And by claiming that game, they are then, they have this source of identity um, that is a source of validity, uh, not only within the country, but outside of it to have Americans recognize that, oh, this in this native game, this Indian game, they would call it at the time, is from Canada. Now that the Canadians are claiming it, that's a source of an identity. Uh, and it, in a way, validates um, that they're claiming that they have something unique in their identity that is coming from the place of Canada. And so that all occurs, of course, um, at the same time, indigenous peoples are continuing to play the game. Um, but Beers actually starts forming a set of rules in 1860. And in 1867, he writes the first uniform code of rules. This doesn't mean indigenous peoples didn't have rules before this. Of course they did. Um, but there was just a different process of coming up with those, those rules and um, agreeing upon them. While Beers decides that he wants to kind of rewrite rules, have a uniform code of rules that organizations could follow. Well, in 1867, he actually 
publishes the first set of rules. And interestingly enough, after being introduced to the game of lacrosse in the 1840s and in the 1850s and the 1860s, and these non-Indigenous Montrealers, that is, after they see this game, Beers comes out in 1867 with his first partial um, partial ban against Indigenous peoples. So within about 20 to 30 years of being introduced to the game by Indigenous peoples, Beers starts this process, process of actually uh, partially banning them. And actually what he's doing is segregating them. So in 1867, he comes out with a rule, uh, a set of rules, but one in particular that states that in Indians can play in games of lacrosse, but they cannot play for a non-Indigenous team. Either they have to have an all-Indigenous team or nothing, which is segregation. Well, this year also brings about the first kind of national uh, lacrosse organization. Now, you kind of got to take that with a grain of salt because national really meant only Central Canada um, at this time for lacrosse organizations, Toronto um, and then Montreal being the kind of two key hubs. Well, throughout this kind of process of appropriation, Beers continues to ramp up this um, kind of kind of propaganda of that they are now claiming the game, that it's theirs, that it's been quote-unquote civilized from Indigenous peoples. And they're attempting to signify this new national identity at home and abroad. They're going on overseas, that is, Indigenous and non-Indigenous teams, led by Beers, are going on national tours. They're going on international tours, particularly in the United States, and then over to England um, in 1876. Uh, an Indigenous team from Ganawage actually plays a non-Indigenous team from Montreal. Of course, Beers is there and was organizing it in front of Queen Victoria. This is key because what they're attempting to do, what Beers is attempting to do, is to signify uh, this new national identity uh, abroad. But Indigenous peoples during this whole time have never given up their sovereignty, uh, their nationhood, or their self-determination. So what those tours mean to Indigenous peoples, particularly the Ganyagahaga or the Mohawk from Ganawage, Mohawks from Ganawage, um, is quite different than what Beers is claiming and attempting um, to kind of demonstrate. So, Yeah, your, your, your first chapter, but really in some ways your first uh, three chapters all kind of look at this uh, appropriation of the game in different in different colonial settler colonial spaces, and I think that was one thing that you really um, that it was really successful in your work in kind of tracing out that actually, um, in some ways, the uh, the nature of this appropriation is also um, is also kind of related to the power of the settler, settler colonial state in in lacrosse because it had these various um, various epistemologies was useful for both the settler colonizer, but also for um, indigenous um, Canadians and, and uh, indigenous North Americans to resist the, the imposition of the settler colonial state. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit, um, especially since you brought up your own family history and you've talked about it in the context of a, a kind of cultural genocide, but I wonder if you could tell us about how the creator's game was being used in residential schools. What are residential schools? Probably everyone should know about these, but maybe they don't. And and how indigenous people in particular were using um, lacrosse maybe in ways that weren't 
anticipated by the settler colonial state. Yeah, so there's a there's a long history here um, of this kind of what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission concluded uh again just a few years as culture genocide i just generally call it genocide um against indigenous <laughs> peoples um it just gets cuts right to the heart of of what what's happened um in this colonial history and 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 continues um to this very day um in different ways but the how does lacrosse fit into the story is um, is really interesting. It's something that I actually I hadn't anticipated when I when I came across all of this and had started studying this uh, as a MA student and then finally as a PhD student and turning it into a book. Um, but I had mentioned that when W.G. Beers writes the first uniform code of rules for organizations to kind of emulate and to copy and use, um, he introduces this idea of segregation into lacrosse. So this is only a about a couple decades after indigenous peoples introduced non-indigenous peoples to the game, he starts segregating them out of their own game. Well, um, there's a lot more to come, unfortunately. And in 1880, there is a new organization that kind of forms known as the National Amateur Lacrosse Association of Canada. It's a an offshoot of the Canadian Lacrosse Association at the time. Um, and what ends up happening is actually in 1880, Indigenous peoples are banned from their own game. Now, the rule that comes out in 1880 states that um, no Indigenous team can play for a Canadian national championship or a national championship competition. Now, again, Indigenous peoples, the Indigenous nations and communities that uh, participated in the game of lacrosse, they're never defined by their ability to play for or against a non-Indigenous team or organizations or even in uh, championship classifications. Uh, the best case and example of this is that in 1880, they're actually banned from Canadian uh, championship competition. Well, in that same year, Indigenous peoples and Indigenous communities across kind of Southern Ontario and Southern Quebec actually create their own world championship uh, as a, what I believe is a response, but I haven't been able to confirm that. Well, there was still more to come in this kind of colonial history, really, unfor uh, unfortunately. And that is in the just a few years later, um, what residential school administrators and principals and teachers would end up doing is, see, this idea that the game of lacrosse was Canadian, that it was considered white enough, Canadian enough um, to be an appropriate source of a new Canadian national identity, that becomes so powerful. It becomes so pervasive within the minds of Canadians that they actually start introducing it into residential schools. Okay. A quick history of what residential schools are. So for those that don't know, residential schools um, were this horrific state-sponsored and um, church-sponsored various denominations uh, ran these schools in which they t removed indigenous children from their communities and attempted to assimilate them. That is to remove them from their communities, remove and eliminate their languages, their culture, their gender identities, um, everything that made up who they were. 
uh, as indigenous peoples. And they would make them live outside of the community and go to these horrific institutions. Some of them had egregious health rates at various times of a 50% death rate um, because of underfunding, funding, unsanitary conditions. Um, they were a, a source of uh, unethical labor and of child labor on farms. Um, and these existed, uh, generally we say that they existed from the late 18, around the 1870s to all the way up until 1996. Now we know they existed before then. There's actually a really long policy of residential schools in various areas, but as a kind of national framework or state framework, um, we see them really ramp up in the 18, late 1870s and in really in the 1880s. Um, and what ends up happening is that again, this idea that lacrosse is such a powerful example of a white Canadian national identity by the 1880s is so powerful and pervasive, pervasive within the minds of Canadians that what they end up doing is introducing the game of lacrosse into residential schools as a way to assimilate Indigenous youth. Why use a sport? The question becomes, why use sport as a way or as a vehicle to help assimilate Indigenous youth? And in particular, why use an Indigenous game, uh, an appropriated yeah. Indigenous game? Well, there's a lot of things happening here. The first and foremost is kind of the audacity to um, come to the conclusion or just to think that you have appropriated the game and changed it enough from its Indigenous history to now claim it as your own. Um, and they Canadians at the time really do believe and understand that this is their game. Um, and it is an example of whiteness. They've eliminated indigenous peoples from championship classifications. Even in British Columbia in the 1880s, there's a rule that states that no indigenous people are allowed to play the game, no Indians, quote unquote Indians, and no people of color. See, it was supposed to be, and it was formulated, it was developed and, uh, as an example of how to perform whiteness and how to perform uh, a Canadian, mascul Canadian masculinity, uh, Canadian whiteness, um, because it was only white athletes that were allowed to participate in this game uh, with, within these competitions, these championship co competitions. So there's that part of it. But why use... Why use sport? Well, the idea from residential school administrators is that they need kind of various vehicles. They need a kind of an assortment of vehicles to help assimilate, to annihilate uh, indigenous identities and languages. And they think that in addition to gender segregation and the introduction of, of um, you know, uh, polar gender divide, that what they can do in addition to segregating genders based on Western constructs, um, that they can introduce sport as a way to teach about 
and assimilate these indigenous youth into Western notions of masculinity, of middle-class values, and expose indigenous youth to non-indigenous youth. So often what we see is things like lacrosse games and soccer games um, being played between residential schools and non-indigenous schools um, from local towns and local cities with the idea being that the more exposure that Indigenous youth have to non-Indigenous, to Canadian youth, they will be able to assimilate better into um, Canadian, into kind of uh, the Canadian system. And so this is why they really ramp up and start using the game of lacrosse. And what we start seeing is from Ontario West, so you have Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and British Columbia, we see residential schools across those provinces starting introducing the game of lacrosse. And it explodes um, by the 1890s. It becomes really popular uh, for use in residential schools as, as a way to be a vehicle for the moral training and assimilation of indigenous youth. And now what that kind of demonstrates is to me, at least, and what I conclude in the book is the, the power of claiming a source of identity, that source being lacrosse. Um, And that's kind of that tension throughout the book is talking about the ways in which lacrosse is used for indigenous nationhoods, Um, so I'm talking about multiple indigenous nations because the game doesn't always mean the same to every indigenous nation, the way they articulate their governance and their identities and their self-determination, their sovereignty. Uh, it depends on what nation they're coming from, but various indigenous nations are using the game to do that. while Canadians are doing the same thing, non-indigenous Canadians, that is. Um, and so we see this power of claiming a source of identity throughout the book. One thing, I mean, you never, you never leave though in your book, and and we've been talking about the settler colonial state so much. I don't want to, I don't want us to only talk about that. But one of the things you never leave is that idea of in, indigenous um, sovereignty and indigenous identity um, formation that indigenous peoples, indigenous nations in in Canada and in the U.S. Um, they never abandon it. They're always and lacrosse is part of that too. So. I, I, I would hate for us to talk for the whole hour and not talk about what in, indigenous nations are doing <laughs> with lacrosse, um, both yeah. to, I, to to promote their own specific national identities, whether they're Squamish or Haudenosaunee, but also to help create kind of pan-indigenous identities. So I wonder whether you want to talk about Indian sports days or whether you want to talk, I mean, whatever direction you want to take us, let's talk too about what indigenous peoples are doing. Yeah, there are so many amazing things that Indigenous peoples are doing with the game of lacrosse from um, during this whole kind of colonial era and period up until the right up until the present. Um, And I have a couple that really uh, that stick out as my favorite, uh, a few of my favorites. And that is um, in the early 1920s. There is a leader of a Haudenosaunee sovereignty movement named the Skyhe, Levi General. He's from Six Nations of the Grand River, so just outside of Toronto. And what he ends up doing is, based on a number of policies that 
we're enfranchising indigenous peoples that is forcibly kind of um, absorbing them it within the Canadian state um, Canadian citizenship um, what ends up happening is Diskaihe and a number of uh, hereditary council leaders within Haudenosaunee community are looking for ways to continue to assert and articulate their sovereignty as Haudenosaunee peoples, as an independent Indigenous nation. And one of the ways that they end up doing that is using the game of lacrosse. So in the early 1920s, what Diskaihe does is he becomes kind of the leader, the spokesperson for the hereditary council. That is the traditional leadership of Haudenosaunee communities. And as he's becoming this spokesperson, this voice of that traditional hereditary governance system, um, he, they come up with this idea that they want to actually approach interna- the international community to f- to fight for the recognition of Haudenosaunee sovereignty. Now, they've never given it up, of course. They've never released or surrendered anything related to their sovereignty to the nation or their self-determination, but they're being absorbed by the Canadian uh, state and or attempted to be absorbed uh, the Canadian state and of the U.S. state because the Haudenosaunee are actually split by the that international border. And so in the early 1920s, what they decide to do, the Haudenosaunee, they decide to actually approach uh, first Ottawa um, to argue to the Canadian government that they, the Canadian government needs to abide by the treaties that had been signed and agreed upon in the past and that continue to this very day in the 1920s or in 2020, um, and that they should recognize that the Haudenosaunee are not simply uh, citizens of the Canadian or U.S. state, they're actually their own independent sovereign entity, of course, and it's always been that way. So you need to re- you need to recognize that as it had in the past. Of course, there was no interest in doing that. And so Diskaihe decides that, okay, they're going to go to the colonial office in England. And argue for this because they don't get a favorable response, um, not unexpectedly, from Ottawa. And so they go to the colonial office, and once again, they're turned down. Um, basically, set, the colonial office says, this is a domestic issue. Canada will take care of this. And it's, of course, a self-serving kind of project for Canada to be involved in this because they're the ones dispossessing Indigenous peoples of their lands, their territories, of their children, of their identities. It's in the nation state is built on that. That's where it actually came from. They're claiming the territories of Indigenous peoples and by removing them. And so what ends up happening is that Diskaihe finally uh, and the Hereditary Council decide they need to go to the League of Nations to fight for the recognition, the international recognition of the sovereignty of the Haudenosaunee. So in around 1922 and 1923, what they start doing is actually trying and attempting to raise funds for their sovereignty movement. And they start hosting Sunday lacrosse games. Well, the interesting story behind this is actually that um, these lacrosse games are illegal under Canadian law. Now, the reason that they're legal under Canadian law is because there's a national law that comes um, to fruition in the early 1900s called the Lord's Day Act. Basically, what it does for all people, Indigenous or non-Indigenous people, 
it shuts down anything on Sunday, basically the sales, um, store sales, libraries, um, sports, these types of things, because the Protestant denominations are attempting to um, repopularize the church, basically, and trying to secure membership at a time when they're really seeing a challenge to that. And so one of the ways that they attempt to do this is actually they approach the Canadian government to enact this Lord's Day Act and basically make it illegal to have sales and all these things and sporting events on Sundays. Well, Sky Hayden knows this. So as an articulation of Haudenosaunee self-determination, he starts having Sunday lacrosse games. Now, this is really interesting because here you have working class Canadians that is um, in that have a free day. They have a free day um, that they're supposed to be attending church, but they have um, this one guaranteed day now uh, where they're off. And so what they end up doing is by the thousands, they go to a field in Six Nations of the Grand River. Again, it's about 45 minutes, an hour drive from Toronto, just outside of Brantford, Ontario. It's the um, one of the biggest, I believe it is the biggest um, community that is indigenous community and reserve uh, in Canada, at least population wise. And they go to this community to watch these lacrosse games and they become these massive spectacular events with four or 5,000 people watching these games between uh, local teams, indigenous teams from the reserve play against each other. And what they're doing is actually raising money for their sovereignty movement. Um, and so what ends up happening is in 1924, Deskaye goes to the League of Nations using the money that they raised through these Sunday lacrosse games um, to actually fight for the Haudenosaunee sovereignty. Now, Deskaye at the time isn't successful in getting the League of Nations to... Um, to recognize the Haudenosaunee sovereignty, but I actually conclude in, in the book and in a separate article um, called playing the creator's game on God's day that the sky didn't fail uh, despite the conclusions of many historians that there was kind of a failure of the recognition because what ends up happening is the Iroquois nationals who are the only team in the world, at least in sporting competition that represent an indigenous nation as a sovereign nation um, in official international competition, they would actually build upon the arguments about recognizing their treaties, using the game of lacrosse and our, arguing it and articulating for the recognition of the Haudenosaunee's sovereignty, at least on the international stage, um, they would pick, take all of those arguments and take everything that uh, Deskaye had done uh, and laying out that framework. And in 1983, they would form a lacrosse team called the Iroquois Nationals to basically have a lacrosse team represent the Haudenosaunee in international competition as a sovereign nation. So that's part of one of those really neat stories um, that I came across in the book, um, where in the early 1980s, the Iroquois Nationals start forming up. And what listeners might not know about this team, or if you have never heard of them, um, the really... I didn't know about them, yeah. Yeah, so one of the really neat things about this team is that... um, 
there are only a couple teams in the world, indigenous teams in the world that actually represent themselves as a sovereign nation. Um, but the Iroquois nationals are the only team that are allowed to compete in international competition, official international competition. So that is they can compete in the world cup of lacrosse. Um, I know there are the Maori all blacks, but as far as I know, they're not allowed to kind of compete in the world cup of rugby. Right. Um, but this lacrosse team can. Well, in the 19, early 1980s, in 1983, um, there are a few individuals, Haudenosaunee individuals, that come up with the idea. Uh, they're looking for a, a new way or a way to articulate Haudenosaunee sovereignty, to uh, educate people about their treaty status, about their independence, um, about their sovereignty. And one of the ways that they uh, think that they're going to be able to do this is to actually form a lacrosse team to represent all of those things. And so throughout the 1980s, they host a various series of exhibitions um, and they travel internationally, which doesn't sound like a big deal to most people. Oh, they traveled internationally. Don't even have to think twice about that. Well, the really cool part about this is that they're actually traveling on a Haudenosaunee passport this entire time. So what they do is in in the mid-1980s, they approach um, the International Lacrosse Federation, the ILF, to um, compete in the World Cup of Lacrosse. Now, there's a lot of skepticism. There's skepticism from Canada um, and a lot of skepticism from Australia about this proposal. So Canada says, wait, the, you're an Indigenous team, this Iroquois Nationals, and you want to represent yourself as a sovereign nation, even though you're within our territory, within Canadian state. You're going to be stealing from our talent pool if you do that, because they believe they see Canada doesn't recognize the borders of the Haudenosaunee or uh, any other Indigenous nation within its nation state framework. Um, and so Canada kind of argues against the Iroquois Nationals in the mid-1980s for joining international competition because they don't want them stealing players from their talent pool. Those Haudenosaunee players, they argue, should be playing for Canada, not an independent team that exists within the borders of the nation-state of Canada. Well, Australia has a little bit of a different argument, and they're saying, okay, if we allow this Indigenous team are we going to have to l allow other indigenous teams into it? And in particular, in particular, if this brings about the exposure of these kind of horrific colonial policies that these nation states, Canada or Australia or the United States or New, New Zealand or whoever else it might be, if this expo brings exposure and media attention to those horrific colonial policies of our past, and I would argue the present, does that mean that Australia is going to have to answer to their own kind of horrific policies that were geared towards indigenous peoples? And so they're really hesitant about letting. Yeah, they would not like to do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. So they're they're really hesitant about the Iroquois Nationals forming this team, as is Canada. But there was a lot of respect for the people that were forming it. Um, there's an individual named Wes Patterson, Rick Hill, um, and Oren Lyons. 
along with Carol Patterson and many others um, that actually helped form this team. And they had a lot of respect in lacrosse communities. Um, in particular, Orrin Lyons had played at Syracuse University. So had a very long history of being in lacrosse circles. And so the ILF actually challenges the Iroquois Nationals. They say, fine, um, we'll put you on this kind of probationary kind of basis. And you need to prove to us that you can financially, competitively, and politically uh, be capable of forming this team. Now, financially, okay, costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to travel in internationally with an entire team um, and all the staff it takes. Competitively, can the Iroquois Nationals, those Haudenosaunee players, can they even um, live up to international standards of uh, playing against England and playing against the United States or Canada, these populations that have, um, you know, significantly bigger talent, uh, pools of lacrosse players. And of course they could because they're some of the lacrosse, best lacrosse players in the world. Um, and, and the last challenge that they had to go through was politically. The whole, the whole point of the Iroquois Nationals was to represent the hereditary council to represent the traditional governance structure of the Haudenosaunee and to articulate their sovereignty, i.e. travel on the Haudenosaunee passport. And so the ILF challenges the team and the organization to prove that they can actually travel internationally on on the passport. They do so in the mid-1980s. It's not the first time that an individual had traveled on a Haudenosaunee passport. Actually, it was created by Descaihe, of course. Um, When Descaihe decided to travel to the League of Nations with his lawyer, what he ended up doing is not only using lacrosse as a way to fund his sovereignty, the, the sorry, the Hereditary Council's sovereignty movement, um, and pay for the lawyer's fees, but he also travels and well, creates and travels on a Haudenosaunee passport as a further articulation of the Haudenosaunee sovereignty. Well, the Iroquois Nationals take this up and they say, we're going to travel on a, on a Haudenosaunee passport. They successfully do that to England, um, where they contact England ahead of time, basically say, hey, we're coming. Um, We're traveling on the Haudenosaunee passport. And they successfully do that. And they actually um, do fairly well against international competition. They host their own tournaments. And after kind of a lot of fights and things that I go through in the book and a couple uh, attempts at getting into the organization, they finally do officially compete in 1990 for the very first time as a sovereign nation in Perth, Australia, um, which is an incredible story. And it really has nothing to do. Yeah, lacrosse is great and um, it makes for a great story, but it's it's so much more than that. It's more about uh, in, that indigenous sovereignty and self-determination and that continued articulation of their nationhood um, to make all of that happen. So there's so many incredible stories that actually I learned um, throughout this process, working with all those amazing knowledge holders and elders um, who shared these stories shared their expertise, shared their brilliance uh, about the game of lacrosse and the stories behind it. Yeah, I, I don't, um, we're, we're getting here towards the end. I don't want to um, neglect to say that there's so many things we haven't covered, um, in, including the ways in which 
um, indigenous participation in, in the early days of lacrosse was conflated with professionalization. Um, some of the, the uh, fighting that happened within or amongst indigenous nations about the participation in the Iroquois nationals, uh, disputes between the traditionalists and the modernists. And I wish we had all day to talk about these things, uh, as well as the Australian connection. And maybe we can talk about that a little bit at, after the interview. Uh, but there's some interesting things there as well. Um, and, and also some fascinating characters. We, um, you've mentioned a, a few, but I'd note uh, also Big John, Andy, Paul, and the Palaces family um, mm-hmm. as being particularly um, uh, powerful for me as a reader. Uh, and can't uh, can't forget to mention the 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 uh, debate about uh, female participation in in lacrosse as well. Uh, but this was just a really rich, uh, really rich project, uh, methodologically innovative and exciting to read. And I encourage uh, everyone to to check it out. Um, and and also Alan's other work in this area. Uh, the last question is always the same question, Alan. I, it's a tough one, perhaps some, for some people, uh, maybe for you too, which is what, are, what can we look forward to next? What's your next project? Yeah, I'm really excited. I, I, I'm, I'm getting away from lacrosse and sport. Um, I, I just, I'm really passionate uh, as a historian of Indigenous nationhood, sovereignty, and self-determination about continuing that um, and really bringing to light stories that that people should know um, that indigenous communities, of course, know themselves, um, but that it hasn't really made into the mainstream Canadian or international indigenous historiography. And so I'm turning to a new project in that area. And that is I'm looking at um, indigenous iron workers in New York city and across the United States. So iron working um, has been really a really important um, source of income and a principal industry for indigenous communities, uh, particularly for the Haudenosaunee, but other indigenous communities that that really plays an active role in various actual court cases and um, and in various sovereignty movements. Just as La Crosse did, uh, ironworking becomes a vehicle in for indigenous communities to be able to to articulate that uh, their sovereignty and their nationhood and their self-determination. And so I'm really excited to be turning to that. Uh, I've had some great help already from amazing scholars like Audra Simpson, who's at Columbia University and from Ganawage. Um, so I'm re- really looking forward to being uh, able to sit down and um, write that. that that project's been going on for about three four years now and i'm i'm getting getting close to hopefully writing some stuff on that well that sounds great and um, i have to admit i the there are littered uh, references to iron work iron workers here um as well in in the creators game so i i i'm i'm intrigued already <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, We've been speaking with uh, Alan Downey, who's an associate professor at McMaster University in departments of history and indigenous studies. Did I hear you add that as well? I didn't say that before. Yes. Uh, He is also um, the author of The Creator's Game, Lacrosse, Identity, and Indigenous Nationhood, 
out from University of British Columbia Press in 2018. Uh, strongly encourage you all to pick up a copy. All right, thank you very much for joining us, Alan. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Keith. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>